You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We pray that you would teach us obedience as well, to be conformed to the image of Christ and to model him in all that we say and do. May we strive to be pleasing to you in every respect. And Lord, may you be glorified by working in our hearts grace and the strength by your power and by your spirit to obey you in all things and to love you preeminently above all else. Do this work, we pray, through your word this morning as we look at it and study it. Convict us and exhort us and encourage us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Jesus is our example uh, for the life that we live. He is not just our Savior from the wrath that is to come. He doesn't just deliver us from God's anger or wrath in the next world, but he actually serves as a perfect example to us in all of our life and conduct in this world. And I think that that is an element of our Christian life that we can oftentimes neglect uh, or forget about. And we seek to live our Christian life sometimes in our own strength or as a mere act of our will or exertion of our own power, our desire to obey. We sometimes think of our obedience to Scripture in terms of a list of do's and don'ts and regulations and external things. And sometimes we can divorce our obedience of our Christian life from our understanding of the gospel. And whenever we do that, our obedience will become very constrained and very forced and, and very burdensome. It is when the gospel, our understanding of the gospel, motivates us to obedience that obedience becomes a true joy. And it has to do with the motivation of our hearts. Why we obey the Lord and how we obey the Lord and what motivates that obedience is what turns obedience from being something that is onerous to being something that is a true joy. So we're going to talk a little bit this morning about the obedience of the Son, because we've been looking in John 8 about the humility of the Son of God, how He came and submitted Himself to the role and the will of the Father. In so doing, He served as an example to us in various areas of His life. And I'll give you a few examples of how Scripture portrays Jesus as an example to us. He is an example to us in our suffering. First Peter chapter 2 Peter says, You have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He left us an example. How do you suffer for righteousness' sake? What do you do when you are persecuted or you suffer, not because you have done anything wrong, but because you have done something right? How do you handle that? Well, Jesus is the example of that. He's also an example of selflessness. Selflessness. Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but in humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. You remember that passage? Paul then describes how he went from being in the form of God, equality with God, a position of equality with God, to humble himself, became obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's humility. That's an example of selflessness. So you and I might ask ourselves, well, what does selflessness look like? What does total, totally living for the interest and 
and uh, uh, the interest and benefit of others, what does that look like? Now, Jesus is the example of that. He's not only an example to us of suffering and of selflessness, but also of service. The Son of Man came not to be served, even though he deserved to be served. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In John chapter 13, Jesus, in the last, his last night with his disciples, said, If I then, the Lord and Teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Hear the language of example? For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. So Jesus is an example of servants, of, of service, of selflessness, of suffering. We could also say that he's an example to us, and I'll just use the, a, a word that starts with the word S, the letter S, submissiveness. Submissiveness. He came as the divine son and submitted himself to the will and to the word of the Father. And he was submissive and obedient even to the point of death. So what does obedience to the word of God look like? What does obedience to the will of God look like? You and I look to Jesus as an example of that. He is an example to us of compassion, of love, of grace, of kindness, of selflessness, of service, of obedience to God's word. He is an example of truth and truthfulness. He is an example of somebody who does not compromise. It is, it is difficult and I would say impossible. It is impossible to think of any area of our life or any realm of our life where we cannot look to Jesus and say, He is an example of exactly how I am to act in this situation or He is an example of exactly how I am to conduct myself under these circumstances. Jesus is a perfect example to us. He is an example of obedience and submissiveness to the will of God and that is the mark or that is the fruit of His humility, the humility of this one who claimed to be the I Am. So now we're in John chapter 8, and last time we were together, we were looking at the humility of the Son, and we saw that there are, presented in John chapter 8, these two seemingly contradictory, but they're not, they're complementary truths. That Jesus is the eternal I Am of Exodus chapter 3, the eternal I Am, ego I me, of the book of Isaiah, the one who always is, He is the eternal Son, always existing, always has existed in perfect unity and and uh, oneness and intimacy with the Father, completely equal to God in every respect. And yet, at the same time, He is the humble, submissive Son who came to do the will of the Father. Those two truths are not contradictory. They're complementary. They go together. Jesus is eternal God. Jesus is the submissive and obedient Son. And in being the submissive and obedient Son, He is an example of us in our submissiveness and obedience to God the Father. So that's what we're looking at in John 8. We saw that there are four ways that Jesus sort of describes himself and his relationship to the Father. We covered two of them or two of them in sort of a glimpse of the third one last time. We saw that he describes himself as a perfect judge, verse 25 of John chapter 8. So they were saying to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? Verse 26, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you. Now they were infuriated because he had suggested that they would die in their sins unless they repented and believed that He is the I Am. Unless you admit that I am God and worship Me and love Me and embrace Me as such, you will die in your sin. That infuriated them. And then Jesus said, I have many things to judge concerning you. I could judge you about your self-righteousness. I could judge you about your unrighteousness. I could judge you over your disobedience to the law. This, If this has infuriated you, this little bit that I have said, there, that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's much more that I could say because He is the perfect judge. Verse 26, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. He's the perfect judge because of his unity with the Father, his oneness with the Father, and because the Father sent him, and he is the perfect 
reflection of the Father, the express image of God's glory, he is perfectly suited to judge all mankind because he does so in truth. And the Father is true, and God, all, everything God always does is in truth and truthfulness. And so Jesus' judgment would be truth, and it would be a true and right judgment. He's the perfect judge. He's also a faithful messenger. That was the second one. That was at the end of verse 26. He's the faithful messenger. The things which I have heard from him, these I speak to the world. Everything that the Father gave for the Son to deliver and to say and to speak, the Son spoke. And he did so perfectly, without failing. Everything that God gave to him, he delivered to us. He is the faithful messenger. Because the Father sent him, and he came, and he spoke the words of the Father. So he is a perfect judge, a faithful messenger. And then we look briefly at the third one. He is the submissive Son. That's in verse 28. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. He is the submissive Son. That last, here's where we, we ended last time, where Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And I ask you this question, how is it that they would, in crucifying Him, because that's the language of, of being lifted up, how would they, in crucifying Him, come to understand that He is the I am, that He is the eternal God? could happen one of two ways. It could happen through salvation, that in crucifying Him and after His crucifixion, these men, like Saul of Tarsus, would realize the error of their ways, they would see him for who he truly is, like the centurion at the foot of the cross. They would recognize, truly, this man is the Son of God. And they would repent and turn from their sin and acknowledge that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the eternal divine Son, who is the great I Am. It's possible that in salvation they would understand him to be the I Am. But it's also possible that Jesus is there referring to their judgment. That when the judgment came upon them, when they suffered eternal torment and hell, they would know exactly who Jesus is. Do sinners in hell today... Know who Jesus is? Oh yeah, they have full knowledge. They know it well. They know exactly who it is that causes their torment. They know exactly who it is that's pouring out His wrath upon them for their rejection, for their disobedience to His will and to His law, and for their hatred of the one true God. They know exactly who Jesus is. So sometime after His crucifixion, Jesus says, after I am lifted up, then you will know that I am. Now that next phrase, and this is the submissiveness of the Son. Not only does His crucifixion indicate His submissiveness, But also, that statement in verse 28, and I do nothing of my own initiative. Now when we affirm that Jesus is fully God, that He is 100% deity, that He is equal in nature and in substance, and that He is one with the Father and one with the Holy Spirit, that He is eternal, infinite in all of His attributes, and always has been, that He has always existed, that He is God in human flesh. Then we read this phrase, I do nothing of my own initiative. And we ask ourselves, how do those two things go together? How is it possible that he can be eternal God and yet do nothing on his own initiative? Isn't part of the definition of God the fact that he can do anything on his own initiative? Right? Isn't that a necessary character quality? Isn't that a necessary attribute of God that he does everything and anything on his own initiative? Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Daniel affirmed that our God is king, he rules over the nations, and no one can keep him from doing whatever he wants to do. So how is it that Jesus could affirm that he is the I am, and yet at the same time say, I do nothing of my own initiative? What is he describing there? Jesus is not describing a lack of power or a lack of authority. Jesus is there describing his use of his power, his use of authority, that he does nothing on his own initiative. This is not the first time that we've heard in the Gospel of John Jesus utter phrases like this. This is why we read at the beginning John chapter 5, and I'm going to turn back there. I'm going to read to you verse 19. After the Jews 
to pick up stones to stone him and to kill him. They were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God, verse 18 says. Jesus didn't back down at all. He says in verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son does in like manner. Jesus didn't back down from his claim to deity, but he simply explained how is how he, as the Son, as the one who claimed to be God, related with the Father in heaven with whom they were familiar with. And Jesus said, I, I do nothing on my own. Look at verse 31. Sorry, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And there Jesus says it again. I can do nothing on my own initiative. What is he describing there? He's simply describing his relationship with the Father. People who deny or reject the doctrine of the deity of Christ will say, see, Jesus here describes himself in terms that that God would never describe himself. God would never say that he can do nothing or that he does nothing on his own initiative. And Jesus said he can do nothing on his own initiative, therefore Jesus is not God. So some people would argue. But that's not what Jesus is describing. Jesus is not describing a lack of power. He's describing his use of power. What would we expect Jesus to say? Let's grant for a second that Jesus is the eternal Son, that he is one of three persons of the Holy Trinity, which he is. Let's grant that Jesus, as the divine Son, came into this world and took upon himself human flesh, lived a perfect life, that he is eternal God. What would we expect the Son to say? Would we expect the second member of the Trinity to say something like this? I am here, and I'm large, and I'm in charge, and I do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want, without any regard whatsoever to the other members of the Godhead. Would we expect Him to say that? Or would we expect the Divine Son, in coming here, being sent by the Father, to say, everything I do, I do in complete conformity with the will of the Heavenly Father. I, as God, do not act on my own initiative in contradiction or conflict with the other members of the Trinity. I'm not here to carry out my own agenda. I'm not here to impose my own glory. I'm not here to seek my own. I am here to do what the Father sent me to do because I love the Father and the Father loves me. And so everything I do, every word I speak, every deed I do, everywhere I go, everything I do, every moment of my life is in complete conformity to the will and purpose and plan of God, because I am one with Him. That's what we would expect the Divine Son to say. That is the language that Jesus is using here. Though He is affirming, I am, when you lift me up, you will understand that I am. He's affirming that. But at the same time, He is saying, I don't use the authority that I have, and I don't use the deity that I have, that is mine by nature, to seek my own. Right? Jesus is not a renegade deity. That's how you need to understand. He's not a renegade deity. He didn't come here and try and accomplish something that the Father did not want him to accomplish. He came here to do everything that the Father gave him to do, and to do it perfectly, in complete obedience to the will of the Father and the will of the Spirit. That's what that language in verse 28 is suggesting, back to John chapter 8. In verse 28, when he says, I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak the things that the Father has taught me. And again, that's the language of his submissiveness. Everything that the Father gave him to speak, he spoke. Now, let me ask you this. How did they respond to what he spoke? With hatred, hostility, contradiction. They were constantly in conflict with it. They hated him. What does Now, if Jesus said, everything the Father has given me to speak, this I speak, and they responded to what he spoke with hatred and hostility, then what does that say about their attitude toward God? Right? If what Jesus gave them was nothing but the word and the will of God, 
and they poured out their hostility on that, what is their attitude toward the one true God? It really is as simple as this. Their expression of hatred toward Jesus' teaching was nothing more than their expression of hatred toward the one true God. Because Jesus is saying, you have rejected what I have told you. You have hated what I have taught you. But I'm here to tell you that I'm teaching you only that which the Father sent me to teach you. And your reaction against that is a reaction against Him. And if you do not honor me, you will not honor Him. If you do not love me, you will not love Him. That's the truth of it. Do you realize that your attitude towards Scripture is indicative of the condition of your heart? Your attitude towards Scripture is a thermometer of the condition of your heart. If your attitude towards Scripture is one of apathy and coldness and lack of concern, that is indicative of where your heart is at with the Lord. Now you know that. Don't think for a moment that God doesn't know that. It's not like God is unaware of the condition of your heart. But your attitude towards Scripture is reflective. It's indicative of your attitude toward God. If you hunger for Scripture, and you love Scripture, and you love to study Scripture, and you love to read Scripture, and you love to obey Scripture, then you will love to hear Scriptures preached. You will love to hear Scripture taught. You will love to be under Scripture. You can't wait to read it. You will hunger for it, and you will love it, because your attitude towards Scripture is indicative of your attitude toward the one true God. If you are cold and apathetic and hostile to it, that is because you are cold and apathetic and hostile to the one true God. However I respond to his word indicates the condition of my heart. It's the same with the Pharisees. They hated what Jesus said. And Jesus is saying, I've been telling you what God says. You have hated that because you have hated God. Their attitude towards God's word was indicative of the attitude of their own heart. All right, so he is the submissive son. He came as the submissive son in obedience to the father to do all that the father gave him, to say all that the father spoke to him. And then the fourth one, He is a perfect judge, a faithful messenger, a submissive son, and fourth, he is an obedient servant, an obedient servant. Verse 29, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Notice the language of being sent, of being sent. That's in verse 16, verse 18, verse 26, and now in verse 29. It's one of the major themes of this discourse. It's actually one of the major themes of the entire Gospel of John. We've seen it a lot back in John chapter 5. That constant reminder, the Father has sent me. I am here because the Father has sent me. You believe in the word of Him who sent me. Over and over through these first eight chapters of John, we have seen that. That the Son was sent by the Father. Now once again, the fact that the Son was sent by the Father is not incompatible with the truth that the Son is God. These two persons, the Father and the Son, are equal, equal in nature, equal in authority, equal in power, equal in essence, and yet the one is sent and the other is the sender. God the Father is the one who planned salvation, the Son is the one who was sent to purchase salvation, and the Holy Spirit is the one who applies salvation. All three members of the Trinity have their role in the salvation of sinners. And what you're hearing Jesus describe is His role in relationship to the Father He is the one who has been sent. The Father commissions. The Son is the one who was commissioned. And He came and He was obedient to the Father, and so He came. Now listen, don't think when you read language like this, that the Father sent the Son, that the Son came unwillingly. Don't think that the Son came unwillingly. We don't say that. We don't. It's not as if the members of the Trinity drew straws and Jesus came up with a short straw, and so He had to be the one who come down here And he came down here quite unwillingly against his will, but the Father wanted him to go. And so he, okay, I'll go, but I really don't like this. That wasn't the way it was at all. We affirm two things. The Father sent the Son, and yet the Son came quite willingly, without any hesitation whatsoever. He willingly came here. He willingly died for his sheep. He willingly gave his life on a cross. He willingly did all of that. 
even though he was the one who was sent. And notice the language of intimacy here with the Father. Verse 29, He who sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone. The Father was with the Son, the Father is always with the Son, and he never abandons or left the Son. God does not abandon his messengers. God does not abandon his servants. Jesus had the presence and power of the Father constantly and always. That's why Jesus could say, the works that I do, they're the Father's works. The words that I speak are the words that the Father speaks through me. I have been sent, Jesus said, and yet the Father has not left me, and he does not leave me alone. He was always with the Father. That is that is a description of that unity, that oneness of essence, that complete and total, always unbroken intimacy between the Father and the Son. The Father sent me, and he is always with me. Now that language is kind of odd to you and I, right? Somebody can be sent, or that somebody can send someone else and yet always be with them. That's odd language. Now think of it this way. If, if I sent you to do a job or to do a task, the point of me sending you would be so that I didn't have to go do it myself, right? So that I wouldn't have to go there. You ever send your kid to go do something? And your kid comes back and it's, it's all messed up. I mean, a complete train wreck out of the whole thing. And you say to yourself, I might as well have gone and done it myself. Right? The point of sending you to do this was so that I didn't have to go. And yet this language, I'm sent by the Father, and yet the Father never left him. The Father never left him. He was always there. Augustine said, the Father sent the Son, and yet quitted not the Son. The Father sent the Son, but quitted not the Son. In other words, the Father sent him, but he never left him. The Father was there in all of that. Their expression of hatred toward Jesus was an expression of hatred toward whom? The Father. The Father is always with me. And what they saw was the express image of the Father, the perfect radiance of the Father's glory in the person of Christ, and they hated it. And they hated Christ because they hated the one true God. God never abandons his servants. Listen to me. If God sends you to do something, God will attend you to do it as well. He doesn't abandon his servants. Remember book of Exodus chapter 3 when God commissioned Moses to go deliver the children of Israel? And Moses said, who am I? Who am I to do this? I, I mean, I can't speak. And God said to Moses, certainly I will be with you. In Jeremiah chapter 1, when Jeremiah was commissioned as a prophet to the nation of Israel, to the land of Judah, God promised Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah said, Alas, Lord, behold, I do not know how to speak because I'm a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And the promise to us in Matthew chapter 28 is go into all the nations and, and preach the gospel, making disciples of all men, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, and lo, what? I'm with you even to the end of the age. That's the presence. You and I are promised the presence of the great I am in all that we do. Now listen. If the Father, if God, if the I Am did not abandon Moses when he sent Moses to do something, and he did not abandon Jeremiah when he sent Jeremiah to do something, he certainly is not going to abandon his own son when he sent him into the world. The Father was always with him, and that is God's promise to you and God's promise to me, that when he calls us to do something, he is with us in it. Now, you may not feel it. You may not recognize it. You may not even be consciously relying or depending upon it, but that is God's promise. No matter what the circumstances, no matter what the outcome, no matter what the reaction, if God sends his servants to do something, he attends his servants in it, and he is with them, and he is with them always. The Father sent the Son, and the Father never left the Son, and the Son came to do all that the Father gave him to do. He was the obedient servant. One of the ways that Jesus is described in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Isaiah, is as the servant of God. 
And there is a, the last half of the book of Isaiah is marvelous, chapters 40 through 66. You have these songs, these little passages in Isaiah where Isaiah prophesies about the coming Messiah, and he does so in terms of the Messiah being the servant of God. The Messiah being the one who would come and do what Israel never did, what the leaders of the nation of Israel never did, and that is to please and obey the will of God fully. And so Isaiah contrasts the disobedience of the nation of Israel with the obedience of the perfect servant. And so Israel was an imperfect servant, always failing to do what God sent them to do and what God told them to do, always disobedient, a stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart people, a rebellious people. And yet the contrast is, my servant, whom I send, he will faithfully fulfill all my will and do everything that pleases me. Isaiah 42, verse 1, for instance, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. That's the picture of the Messiah. The one in whom God's soul would delight. Why does the soul of God delight in the Messiah? Why did the soul of God delight in Jesus Christ? The answer is at the end of verse 29. For I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. Now this, in distinction with the Pharisees, who never did things which were pleasing to the Father. This, in distinction with the nation of Israel, who failed constantly to do that which pleased the Father. Jesus could say, the Father is always with me, He never leaves me because I always do that which pleases Him. The Father is completely and always pleased with the work and the words of His Son. God's soul, the soul of the Father, the love of the Father, delighted in His Son because the Son was perfectly obedient. By the way, that is a declaration of Jesus' sinlessness. His sinlessness. Sin always displeases God. So if sin always displeases God, and Jesus always did that which pleased God, then what is Jesus saying when he says, I always do those things which are pleasing to him? He could have said it this way, I do nothing that displeases the Father. Which is a declaration of his own sinlessness. He is perfectly obedient. He is perfectly in conformity with the will of the Father. And everything he did, the Father delighted in. Because everything that he did was pleasing to the Father. Now that is another way in which Jesus is an example for you and for me. To always do those things which are pleasing to the Father. We are told to seek first the kingdom of God. We should be consumed with God's glory. We should always ask in every circumstance, in every situation, how can I respond to this or how can I behave in this situation in a way that will bring glory to God? If I have been called by Him, if I have been chosen by Him, if I have been called into service to this King, then His name, His fame, His glory should be my eternal and everlasting and constant concern. So I ought to always, in all things, seek to please Him. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9, it is our consuming desire, whether we are absent or present, to always be pleasing to Him in every respect. That's what should consume us. I believe that is the heart's cry of every true believer. How can I please God in this? What would God be pleased with? How can I treat my wife in a way that pleases my Heavenly Father? How can I treat my husband in a way that pleases my Heavenly Father? How do I treat my kids in a way that pleases my Heavenly Father? How do I treat my employees in a way that pleases my Heavenly Father? How do I do what my employer asks me in a way that will please my Heavenly Father? Everything I do, every act of service, everything that you and I are involved with, we ask this question, how can I be pleasing to Him? Now let me tell you something that will not come as any surprise to anybody in this room. You will fail to please God at some point, likely today. So get ready for it. You are going to fail in some way at some time 
to please your Heavenly Father. But listen, this is the good news of the Gospel. With whom is God eternally and infinitely pleased? The Father. With whom? With His Son, who always did that which was pleasing to Him, who fulfilled the law and had perfect righteousness. The Son, the Father delights in His Son. Now here's the promise of the Gospel. God is always and constantly favorably disposed toward those who are in His Son. Not because we have earned His favor, but because the Son always did that which was pleasing to the Father. So why do I seek, why do you seek to please your Heavenly Father? Is it because you want to earn His favor? Nope. You can't earn His favor. His favor rests upon you because He is delighted and pleased with His Son. And if you are in His Son... God always is favorably disposed to you. And listen, God can never act toward you in any way other than as pleased with you and delighted in you because of the righteousness with which you are clothed. So what is the motivation for my obedience and my desiring to bring glory to my Heavenly Father? Is it to earn His favor? No, I have His favor. Why do I do it? I do it because I have His favor. It is because God is pleased with me because I am in His Son, and because God looks at me, and when He looks at me, He sees the blinding, impeccable, full, brilliant righteousness of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God delights in you, and He delights in me because of what Christ has done. And for that reason, I want to be pleasing to Him. And so for that reason, you want to be pleasing to Him. Not to earn His favor, you have His favor if you are in His Son. But you seek to be pleasing to Him because you want to live in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. You want to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You want to pursue holiness without which no one can see the Lord. You want to delight in God. You want God to delight in you. You want to be pleasing to Him because He has shown you favor in His Son. That is gospel-centered, gospel-motivated obedience. Do you understand that? That little phrase at the end of verse 29, friends, that is the gospel. Jesus Christ always does that which pleases the Father. For that reason, because I am in Him, God is pleased with me. He shows me favor. He shows you favor. And the Gospel says, be pleasing back to Him because He is already pleased with you. It is our joy to delight in doing that. Obedience becomes a joy when I realize He is He delights in me. Not because of anything I've done, but because of what Christ has done. And that motivates a greater obedience. May God grant us the grace to do that very thing. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You that You have taken delight in Your Son and that Your Son has taken all of our sin upon Himself on the cross. We thank You that You are favorably disposed toward us and that You always act in accordance with our justification. We have been declared righteous by faith before You and we have the brilliant righteousness of Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For that we thank You. We could never stand before You in our own righteousness for we would be clothed in nothing but filthy rags. So we thank You that You have given to us what we could never earn, and now we ask that You would give to us grace, that we might live in accordance with the righteousness that You have given to us. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called, and teach us, we pray, to delight in Your Word, to delight in You, to delight in Your grace, and to delight in our obedience. Give us submissive hearts to follow the example of Christ who was submissive and humbled Himself and became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. If His obedience was not below Him, then surely our obedience should not be below us. May we live in accordance with Your grace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.